Father, that is our desire, and at least it should be our desire, that we should love the world but yet hate the dark that the world brings. And we are so thankful to be saved. We're thankful that we can join as a congregation just for a moment in the eternal praise that is happening constantly in heaven, in your throne room. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. We would pray that you would be pleased with what you see here. You see hearts. Well, the rest of us just see external, but you see the heart. God, I would pray that you would help us today as we look into your word, find out what it is that you say about how we ought to live and how we ought to respond uh, to this great, glorious salvation that you've given to us. So we pray that you'd help us to know how to do that today. We pray that you'd help us to look uh, intently at ourselves as we look at these holy things. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. So good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out and open them to the book of Luke, the 20th chapter? And I'm excited to be able to preach this morning on verses 20 through 26. And if you're a guest with us here at Salem Heights this morning, I want to just say thank you for being here. Welcome to our church. And I'm glad that you're here. And we are going to be in the middle of a series called, So What Do I Do With That? We've reached a section in the Gospel of Luke where Christ's teaching and movements during this time of what's called the Passion Week, the week where uh, it culminates in his ultimate suffering for us on the cross for the sins of all mankind. In this section of Luke, the crucifixion is just days away, and there's tension now that is rising between uh, Christ and the Jewish leaders at an all-time high. Uh, His interactions with the chief priests and the scribes And the different leaders that were in Jerusalem at this time is rising. And we've felt that in the last several weeks of this series. The scriptures have told us that Christ's enemies have come to their breaking point and they want to destroy him. But it's at this difficult moment that uh, Jesus is gaining popularity. And so the Jewish leaders are failing to find that opportunity to be able to take him out. And so they've tried to trap him in, their, in his words. They've asked questions and made accusations, but to no avail. And every time that Christ responds to his opponent's critiques and questions, his words have been very direct because deadlines demand directness. I don't know about you, but anytime you're trying to go anywhere and, and you know that you've got to be somewhere and the clock is ticking, sometimes our communication with our spouses or with our children or with other people can become very direct and to the point. Because we know we, can't, we don't have time now to mess around. We've got to make sure we get things done, and we get it done quickly because there's a deadline approaching. Christ knows that his crucifixion is days away, and he's teaching and he is preaching in the temple Days before, he's going to give his life on the cross and die a human death. And so he is being very direct with his comments towards not only those who are listening, but to his opponents. And so this morning, we're going to be in our third week of this series in Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. Would you please stand in honor of God's word as we read our text for this morning? We're going to actually start in verse 19. It says this, The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. 
So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Do you believe that actually happened? Yes, it did. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, we've had a powerful time of worship this morning where we have proclaimed that you are the great I am. And now, Father God, we ask that you would give us understanding of this text, that you would, with your Spirit's help, help it to come to life for us, and that you would prompt us to respond to it appropriately in the way that you want us to respond to it this morning. We pray and ask for your help in this way. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you enjoy probably playing board games with your family, or you like to be able to, hey, I know we're moving into a technological age, so maybe you're getting to enjoy playing video games with your children. I don't have the attention span for that or the patience. Uh, but growing up, I, we got to play lots of games, and uh, one of the games that I was taught at a young age uh, was the game of chess. Uh, chess is a, is a game of strategy. Uh, it's a game of uh, tactical uh, abilities, and uh, it has a lot of things that you have to do, and, and there's a number of pieces that are on the board, and each piece on the board, each side gets 16 pieces. Each piece on the board has a certain uh, limitation. It has certain movements that it can do, and, and you have to follow the, the movements of that in order to play the game effectively. Uh, the whole purpose of the game of chess is to be able to uh, put the other uh, your opponent's king in what's called checkmate, where they cannot escape capture. That's the whole goal of it. Uh, many cultures play chess around the world. Uh, there's many cultures that believe that it is the most sophisticated and intellectual game. In fact, uh, during the Cold War in Russia, Soviets would, they would teach kids chess. It was part of their education system because they believed they could prove their intellectual dominance and their ability to be the best chess players in the world. And so chess is a fun game, but it's also a little bit of a game that's kind of like an onion. It has multiple layers. You can kind of play chess and just know how to move the pieces. And every time you move it correctly and get to take one of the other team's pieces, you kind of get giddy. There's some joy to it. But if you play against someone who knows the levels and the strategy and the positions and the movements of chess, in a matter of just three or four moves, they can have you in checkmate and the game is over. And hopefully they don't gloat and put that, you know, in your face kind of thing. But there's something in chess that's really attractive. And, and if you're able to accomplish this, it's one of the most fun things that you can do. And it's called a, a zugzwang. Now, you might not have heard that term before, but a zugzwang is when you put your opponent in a position in the game where every move that they have to make puts them at further and further disadvantage. It's the point in the game where you've moved your pieces in a way where a checkmate is inevitable. You have placed your pieces where they move in the left or they move to the right. They move forward, backwards, or diagonal in any direction. They are actually taking one step closer to their ultimate destruction. 
And in chess, if you can get to the point of a zugzwang, you have put yourself in a position to win because you believe that you've created a situation where there is no possible way for them to succeed. In our text this morning, Jesus' opponents believe they have finally come up with the perfect question to seal Jesus' fate and to remove him from authority, from a prominence, from popularity. In our notes, it says, It was the last week of his life, and the tension was mounting. The religious leaders in Jerusalem were trying to destroy Jesus, but they could not find a way to do it because people were hanging on his every word. First, they tried to trap him by asking him if he had a license to preach and perform miracles at the temple. But Jesus gave such a brilliant answer that they were trapped themselves. Next, Jesus told them a story of an owner, an owner's son, which made them even angrier. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. The more people listened to Jesus, the more their control was slipping away. The frustrating thing for them was that there was nothing they could do about it. Jesus was much too popular for them to be able to get rid of him. The scribes and chief priests realized that if they were going to take out Jesus, they were going to have to use a different approach. So they set into motion a carefully designed plan to entrap him. You know, Jesus, up to this point, had had many interactions with the religious leaders of the day. And he presented himself, now that he had made it to Jerusalem, he had presented himself as the, the prophesied king, the Messiah. And several times, on many different occasions, these religious leaders of Israel had confronted Jesus on matters of his authority, on his practices, hoping to hear him say something that would give them the grounds to take him out, to remove him from the scene, but they were unsuccessful. Over the last several weeks of the different passages we've seen, we've seen them challenge and confront him. Uh, as he came into the, the praises of a joyful crowd, them saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Pharisees told him, rebuke these disciples for calling you that. When he cleaned out the Gentile courtyard of money changers and merchants and began to teach and preach the gospel, the chief priests, scribes, and elders confronted him saying, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is the one that gave you this authority? But each time these religious leaders would come and confront Jesus and try to intimidate him and try to get him to stumble and to cower, he didn't. But he answered in a way that both diffused their accusation in front of the other people who were watching, but also indicted their motives and actions. And so we read in verse 20 in our passage today that they began to watch him. They watched him, it says, and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they may catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. The scribes here and chief priests devised a devious plot. They had to try something different. Jesus knew them, he knew their motives, and he knew their tactics. He knew what they were trying to do. And so as they sat around and they began to think of plans and began to talk through ideas, maybe we could do this, or maybe this will catch him, or maybe we could put him in this kind of situation, and, and he'll fall, and he'll do something where we can point him out and, and bring it before the people, and they would reject him. As they began to banter around ideas of what they could be, at some point the idea came, well, maybe we can get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. We've tried to get him in trouble based on the Jewish authorities and the Jewish laws and Jewish regulations, but it's not working. 
And so it says that they, spent, they sent spies to try to beat Jesus at his own game. They devised what they thought was the perfect question. That no matter which way Jesus would answer the question, he would incriminate himself to either the Jewish nation, the people of Israel and its leaders, or to the Roman officials. They had placed him in a zugzwang. Jesus had used this tactic earlier with them, and, and they had felt embarrassed because they had come and asked him, by what authority was he doing these things? And he asked them a question, a question that, as the text told us a little bit earlier, that they were refused to answer because they knew if they answered it this way, it would not look good for them, and if they answered it this way, it would not look good for them. So they said, I don't know. And so they tried now to take that tactic and use it against Jesus. They, they sent spies in, people that maybe weren't around Jesus before, the people that whom Jesus wouldn't recognize them. And, and they had them listen there. And it says here in the text that they pretended to be righteous. They, they pretended like they really cared about what Jesus was saying, really wanted to have him teach them, that they really cared about his perspective. But they didn't. And at the perfect moment, when they thought they had the opportunity to present a question that would trap Jesus, no matter how he answered it, they asked a question in verse 21. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and that you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Their plan was set in motion, flattering him with praise, noting his objectivity that he wasn't going to play favorites. They're doing this in hopes that they might lower his guard, that he might not be so focused on giving the proper answer, the answer that gets him out of all this trouble. They thought maybe before that his answers had been evasive, but they weren't evasive. They were authoritative in speaking in truth because he's God. But trying to flatter him, trying to build him up, their hopes were that he would lower his guard and be careless with his words. But it tells us in the text that Christ detected their trickery. Flattery could not hide the duplicity of their question. Their question centered on the issue of, of a tax. Should we pay taxes? Some of our translations say the tribute tax. Uh, this, was, this was a poll tax. It was a payment that the Jewish people were forced to make once a year to Rome. And, and this tax was a symbol of their submission and dependence on Rome as the governing nation. So each year, you had to pay the poll tax. And so the Jewish people asked Christ, is it lawful for us? Is this, is this okay for us? Should we be paying this tax to Rome? Now, the Jews despised this tax for a couple of reasons. One was a political reason. The other was a religious reason. The political reason was this, to pay this tax in the mind of a Jewish person was to be acknowledging Rome's right to rule over Israel, which they did not want or support. In their minds, why do we have to pay a tax for living in our own land? It's our land. And so they rejected this. They did not like this. The religious reason would be to pay this tax would be acknowledging Caesar as the royal authority over God. So perhaps Christ would simply answer yes, and if so, the Jews could accuse him of betraying the people of Israel and his claim to be king, because why would a Messiah king keep us under the authority of Rome? Why would he continue to have us pay a tax to another person's leader? 
But if he were to answer no, the leaders could run to the Roman officials in Jerusalem and accuse him of trying to start a rebellion, which would surely lead to his arrest and most likely his death, because Rome had a, a kind of a reputation of dealing with this kind of talk and this kind of mutiny and this kind of rebellion swiftly and firmly. But Christ doesn't take the bait. Luke tells us that Christ detected their trickery. How is that possible? These were spies. These were unknown people to him at this point. How could he know what they were trying to do? Because he's God. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He saw it coming from a mile away. He saw it coming from eternity away. Because he's God in the flesh. Please understand that when we're talking about Jesus Christ here, and as we head towards Easter in the, in, the, in the celebration, not only of his crucifixion, but the glorious fact that he rose from the dead. He's no longer hanging on a cross. His bones aren't in the ground somewhere. He rose victoriously from the dead. But as we talk about Jesus, we are not talking about a companion to God. We're not talking about a sidekick to God. We're not talking about Robin to Batman. We are talking about God. God the Father, God the Son, equal in essence, fully God. But the Son of God, in obedience to the will of the Father, came and took on human flesh so that he could live a perfect life, die on the cross for your sins and for mine, be buried and rise again, and now we can be saved from our sins. So this is God doing this for us. How did he know that? Because he was God. Matthew and Mark described this account as he detected their hypocrisy. He knew that they weren't really meaning these things. He knew that their question wasn't really because they were sitting there, chin on their hands, leaning forward, saying, please teach us, Father. No, they were trying to set him up. And knowing their tactic, he does what he often did. He asked them a question. In verse 24, it says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. The amount of this annual poll tax or tribute tax that you had to pay was one denarius. Denarius was a Roman coin. Uh, we have a picture of it for you here. It was a Roman coin that had the image of Caesar Tiberius on one, on one side, and it had an inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So on this coin... Caesar here is depicting himself as the son of God, the son of the God. This was an offensive coin to the Jewish people. They wouldn't even want to have this on their person if they were truly following the law, because why would they carry around something that had the graven image of somebody else who claimed to be God or the son of God? And yet, as Jewish people, in order to live under the, the safety and security and to live in good standing with Rome, they were forced once a year to pay one denarius of the poll tax. Since it had an image representing deity that was not God, they would not want to have this on it. But notice here that when Jesus asks, hey, uh, show me one of these coins, that somehow on one of their, in one of their pockets, one of them had one of those. They had already submitted to the fact that Rome was an authority. Again, their whole thing wasn't this great offense and what's he going to say here? They were trying to set him up to fail. The trap was set. It was the moment of truth. They had asked the question, is it lawful for us to pay this tax? 
I wonder if they had to concentrate on keeping a straight face so that they didn't tip Jesus off to their plan. Thinking so smugly and so arrogantly that they had finally set up the zugzwang as if he didn't see it coming. And yet there's no indication in the text here of hesitation. They asked him the question. And Christ's answer leaves them stunned and silent. It says in verse 25, And he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saint in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. You see, they thought they had the perfect question to catch Jesus. There was no possible answer he could give, they thought, that would get him out of this trap. And yet they failed to recognize God's authority over all creation. They never considered for a moment a third possible answer, a better answer than yes or no. I have a friend of mine who uh, had the opportunity to actually create with a group of people a board game. Um, it, was, it was a board game that um, not maybe a lot of people who just kind of go maybe to play Yahtzee or Monopoly would know of, but it was a board game that actually won some awards and grew in popularity. And uh, he happened to be traveling one day, and he had a layover in Cleveland. And, and in this time, he got online, and he found out that there was a game store in that town that was doing what they call a demo day for this game. So every time you get these new board games, these game stores will do a demo day where people can come in. They can show them kind of the premise of the game, how it works, the, and get some feedback, but also try to promote the game so people will buy it and try it out. And so he found out that this game store was going to do a demo day for the game that he had part in creating. And so he goes to this store, and he walks in, and, and he sees people playing. And so he acts like a, 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 someone off the street who had no idea about this game. And so he's listening to them explain the game, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Oh, well, tell me about this. And so they start to deal out the cards, and, and just by random deal, he gets the card dealt to him that is actually the one that's based on him. It's his character. And they're like, oh, no, 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 you should take that because it's a pretty advanced card. And like, you know, this is really hard to use. You should probably take an easier card since you're trying to say, like, no, I want to try this out. And they go to play the game, and he begins to just work this group of people. They're like, how, wow, you're really picking this up pretty quickly. <laughs> like, how do you know how to play this game so well? And after a few minutes of the game going on, because it's a game that takes several, several hours to play, he, he turns the box over, and he points to his name on the box. He says, well, actually... Uh, this is who I am, and I'm actually one of the creators of this game. And they all stayed, they just kind of stared at him like, what? <laughs> they came, Jesus' opponents, with him, with their best question, and he schooled them. <laughs> that is not a biblical word, but that is the best <laughs> word I could think of. Maybe to view it even more modernly, he dropped the mic on them. They sat in unbelief. I mean, think about their expressions. They thought they had him. The trap was set. And he answers them in a way, and it says they sat amazed and in unbelief. His authority, his omniscience, his omnipotence are clearly seen in his response. And it says they be sitting amazed at his answer. They became silent. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this text to our lives? Specifically, Jesus' statement, the direct statement of verse 25, 
that says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's interesting to note that in 1992, the Jesus Seminar, which was a group of people who went through the Gospels and, detect, and tried to determine what did Jesus actually say, what did he probably not say, and what did he obviously for sure didn't say, and they basically wiped out the majority of the Gospels and said Jesus never said this. This is one of the passages they said, no, he said this. This statement that to render to Caesar what is Caesar and render to God the things that are God. How do we deal with that? One commentator wrote, if you want to start a good argument, start talking about religion or politics, either one. But if you want to start a war, then bring your religion into your politics. So this is something that could be a little, I mean, in our day and age and in our culture currently, this is a great question for us to look at. As he's talking about how someone uh, who follows Christ, who follows the living God, should respond to the government that they're under. And so I do believe there are a few important truths highlighted in this text that I would love for us to consider this morning. The first one is this. We are to give God the things that belong to God. This statement was simple. Give to Caesar the things that belong to him and give to God the things that belong to him. So the question then is, what belongs to whom? What is Caesar's and what is God? In verse 24, Jesus asks to see a denarius, but then he asks this question, whose likeness and inscription does it have? This is an interesting word here. This word likeness in the Greek is icon, which means image. Now, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in Genesis chapter 126, that says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. As God is, is, is creating all things, and he's saying it's good, and then he's creating man, and in Genesis it tells us that the three persons of the Trinity, they agree that let's make man in our image and in our likeness. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, Septuagint, this is the exact same word. When it says likeness, they use icon, the same word that Jesus asked here. Whose image is on that coin? This idea of image means a living image or a representation to have marks of its creator, by its creator. You know, ancient coins were actually understood to be the property of the person whose picture was inscribed on them. And so wherever that currency would go, it would be good as long as that person was in authority over that domain. And so here in America, we use the dollar bill. You go around in America, we can exchange. That's, that's an accepted currency in our country. You go to other parts of the world, we know the dollar is pretty, it's pretty uh, international. You can use it a lot of places. But there are some places that they would prefer, no, they would have their own currency, their own money with their own leaders on the, on the paper, on the coins. But it was understood by those people that Jesus was talking to that who that belonged to was Caesar, his pictures on it. That inscription was written about him. But we got to be careful to understand here that Jesus is not indicating two equal authorities. No, the second one is clearly greater than the first. But what he is highlighting is that that is Caesar's likeness on the coin. And because that's on his coin, that's his. Give that to him. That's his money. That's from his kingdom. Give that to him. But you have the image of God stamped on you. And just like Caesar's image on the coin means that that's his, God's image on us means that we are his. 
And so we are to give ourselves to God. Believers, we, not, we don't only bear his image, but he redeemed us. He bought us back through his precious blood. All oh, that we would grasp the magnitude of this statement by Christ. God doesn't want our stuff. He wants us. Give to Caesar what is his. That's his possession. That's his temporal monetary position that works within his realm and domain, within his kingdom. But there's an eternal kingdom where one God sits in authority, one creator of all things, who has stamped his image and his likeness on us. He has made us different and has set us apart from all of his creation. And he says, render, give back to the person who that belongs to. Give Caesar what's his, but give God what is his. Give him all of yourself. Give him your life. Don't hold on to it. And so whatever we are to do, we are to do it for the glory of God. Amen? But there's a second thing I want us to consider this morning, and that is this. Obedience to earthly authorities is obedience to God. The chief priests, scribes, and their spies thought they had the perfect question because they thought it was impossible for a person to honor both God and Caesar. Christ showed us otherwise. In his commentary on the life of Christ, J. Dwight Pentecost writes this, Christ recognized two divinely constituted spheres of authority. In one sphere, God is supreme. In the other, Caesar has a delegated authority. See, they fail to recognize that God is an authority over all of his creation. And they fail to recognize that government is a created thing. It has been created by God and has a purpose. Good government has a part in God's plan. In Romans 13, we read that all governing authorities on earth have been given their authority by God to govern and protect against evil. It is there that in Romans 13 that Paul echoes the same words we just read by Christ, where he instructs believers to render all that is due to the governing authorities. Now you might think to yourself, well, but the government wasn't as corrupt back then as it is today. Rome had a history, had a reputation of being unjust and cruel to the people of God. Paul makes that statement in Romans 13 when Nero is in power in Rome. Nero hated Christians. He hated them and made it a, a life purpose to try to destroy them. Christian, we need to be the best citizens, not just in America, but around the world. Whatever country we live in, whatever country we have citizenship in, Christians should be the best citizens around the world because their obedience is inseparably linked to their faith in God, his provision, and his justice. What Christ is highlighting is that we belong to a temporary kingdom on earth and an eternal kingdom in heaven. Both have unique obligations, and our obedience to both honors God because he placed them there. The reality is that we can claim to honor God, we can claim to know him and to follow him, but when we do not obey his word, we are not honoring him, we are dishonoring him. And so if it's scripture, it tells us that we need to show honor for our leaders. We need to pay the taxes that we are asked to pay. It is dishonoring to God to not obey his word. Believer, let's honor him in our obedience to his word. 
But the last point I think that's important to make based on this text is in the life of a Christian, God has the last word. Not the government, not man, God. While we are to render to earthly authorities their due, earthly authorities have a limitation of rights. They have been established by God for a specific purpose, and they have a plan in his plan. They have a place in his plan. But our first and foremost loyalty must go to God and God alone. If government instructs us to go against God or his word, we must resist. But anything short of this does not excuse us from being good citizens, for praying for our leaders, for reaching into our communities with the hope and redemption found in the gospel. Believer, we need to let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. This is a tough thing. A direct statement that says, honor those who are in authority over you, knowing that I have allowed them to be in authority, but I'm still in control. I'm still on my throne. Believer, will you give your all to Christ? Will you give everything to God that he deserves? Will you give him all that that he deserves because it's his? That's the question for us to consider this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the brilliance of your son, the way that he reflected not only the Father, but he reflected the, this doctrine we learn about God, your omniscience, your omnipotence, your justice. That God, he wasn't being evasive, he wasn't trying to run away, but he was trying to show them that they had the wrong idea about who was in charge. God, you are in charge. Thank you for stamping your image on us. Thank you for making us image bearers. Thank you for redeeming us from a life that is separate from you through our sin and and allowing us now to come back through faith and have a relationship where we can be your image bearer to the whole world. God, help us to not hold on to the things that we think are our own, but let's give us, help us to give you what is yours, God. Thank you for being the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Heavenly Father. We love you. And we pray this in your son's beautiful name. Amen.